Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the psalm appointed for Reformation Sunday. The sermon is taken from Psalm 46, which can be found on page 885 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord, is, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the work of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Heavenly Father, these are your words and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There is a common <coughs> misconception when it comes to Martin Luther and the Reformation. For many Protestants, and maybe especially for American Protestants, the Reformation is all about action. It's about starting something new. It's about getting something done. It's about doing big things for Jesus. For the last 500 years, many people think Luther's main activity in the Reformation was starting a new church. And this notion alone has given license for all of the other new churches and new ideas to gain traction and momentum in the Protestant wing of Christianity. But newness and action for action's sake was never, ever the case for Luther. He never intended to start a new church. And when it became apparent that he was starting a new church, almost by default, he was always careful to declare that he saw the Roman Catholic Church of his day, not the Lutherans, to be the one that broke with history, that broke with tradition, and that broke with Scripture. It is, in fact, for this reason why I am constantly agitating for and agitating in vain that we move Reformation Sunday from October 31st to June 25th. Because I think part of the notion of when we celebrate the Reformation propagates this idea. To connect Reformation Sunday to Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door, the church door in Wittenberg, is to connect the Re Reformation to agitation to connect it with debate, to connect it with rebellion. But I think, and again, I know it's incredibly easy to get dead people to agree with you, I think, for what it's worth, that Luther would be in favor of moving it to June 25th, to the date 
of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. Because, in fact, the Reformation is all about a confession of truth. It is all about the truth of Scripture. It is all about standing on something that has been delivered to us. In this way, the activity of the church during the Reformation and the activity of the Christian life described in Psalm 46 are incredibly similar. These activities are marked not by what we are doing, but by what God is doing and how we respond to that. And so three times in Psalm 46, we see God acting. But each time we see him act, our focus is intended to be on his presence. So first, we see in Psalm 46, God's presence in creation. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, one of the many weird things that make me me is that I am incredibly fascinated with the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Part of this is due to the fact that Mount St. Helens erupted 13 days before I arrived on this planet. I think the events are unrelated. Leave it up to you. I think so, all right? But what has always fascinated me about Mount St. Helens is how we have such a readily documented case of the sheer power of nature. There are two examples of this. First, uh, and and I've seen this many places, but if you want to see it, all you have to do is search in Wikipedia for the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and it's right there on the Wikipedia page. Now, take note of this. I don't often recommend you go to Wikipedia, but in this case, I'll allow it. And halfway down the article in Wikipedia, there is a comparison that is made uh, in a photograph. When this photograph is taken on a ridge that has a valley separating this ridge with the mountain. And the first photograph is taken the day before Mount St. Helens erupted. And on that photograph, you see nature as it was undisturbed. There's a lush green pine forest between Mount St. Helens and this ridge. There's no open spaces. It's, it's your typical uh, Pacific Northwest idyllic scene. The second photograph was taken four months after the eruption from the exact same vantage point. And that same valley now looks like the surface of an alien planet you might see in Calvin and Hobbes or something like that. The valley is entirely bare, charred. There's not, not only no remnants of trees like a forest fire, there's no trees at all. It's been entirely wiped out, full of ash and craters. It's astounding when you look at it. I could could look at those two photographs all day and just notice something new about it every time I look. The second thing about Mount St. Helens is uh, a description that we have of the eruption itself by those who survived the eruption. 
And uh, the main destructive force, aside from the explosion and the ash plume that, that affected everything in the world around it, the main destructive force in the immediate area is something called, is due to something called a pyroclastic flow. And that's the geothermal heat that came from within the earth during the eruption. And what is so terrifying about pyroclastic flows, at least in the case of Mount St. Helens, is that they are entirely silent. Those who survived the eruption described they did not hear it coming. They did not know about it, and then it was on them. Just like that. And what happens, uh, as best as I can tell, is that the, the heating, the superheating of the air and the movement of the air creates almost like a vacuum, and sound doesn't travel through a vacuum. It can't. And whether or not that's the case, that's how I reasoned it out in my head as I was trying to wrap my brain around it, but it's entirely silent. And what that means is that this natural disaster, this this act of God was unheard by the people who were impacted the most. It just obliterated the area. And why I was thinking about that this week is we have similar language here in Psalm 46. We we talk about the upsetting of the earth, the mountains being moved into the heart of the sea and trembling at its swelling. And in all of this turmoil, in all of this trouble, our attention is drawn to the presence of God, who is a very present help in trouble. We may not be able to control nature. We might not even be able to manage the world around us. But we are directed by God in his word to the truth that we don't have to. Instead, we are directed to God, to look to him, to his presence, who at the core of how he interacts with us as his creatures is to help us. When the world around you is upended, the basic truth God wants you to know is that he is there. And he is with you. That is good news. And in fact, that good news is something I'm going to ask you to hold on to until the end of the message. You need to move on here. The second place we see God's presence in Psalm 46 is in the church. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations raise, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. A similar sort of historic event captured my attention with these middle verses. It has been said that one of the reasons for the success of the Reformation, as odd as it sounds, was the existence of the advancing army of the Turks if not for the very real threat of the armies of Islam in Eastern Europe, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, likely would have spent more time with his Roman Catholic armies wiping out the German Lutherans. But he was distracted. He had other things 
on his mind. He needed the German states with him to be a buffer zone between the Turks and the rest of Europe. And so he tended, at that point in history, to be more passive and more permissive of religious strife in the church. But this odd series of events shouldn't surprise us. After all, God has been directing all of human history for all time to bring about the preparation, the accomplishment, and the spread of the gospel. And so we in the church, those of us who are the children of God, have no reason to fear. Though the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, God is in the midst of his people. He is present with us. He is here right now. He comes to you in his word. You receive him in holy communion. He will not leave you nor forsake you. God is with you and he cares for you. And so finally, we see God's presence in salvation. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. This is, is it not, the desire of every Christian, isn't it? To see God working, to have God lead, to have God specifically, individually, clearly show you the way. I think this too is likely the desire of every agnostic, to know that God exists and to know for certain But what is so interesting about this desire is that we have, in fact, seen God working. We know that God works, and we will see him work again. Maybe not in the ways we expect, or even in the ways we desire. See, the language used here in Psalm 46 is the language of judgment day. The final victory God wins before ushering us all into eternity. To understand what God does at the end of time, we need to understand what he did for us on the cross. The desolation, the victory in battle, the undoing of evil, all of this was sealed as good news for the children of God in Jesus' victory at the cross. His victory over sin, death, and the devil. Every time the Old Testament, every time Scripture talks to you about the works of God, Scripture is pointing you to the work of God, to God on the cross in your place, to God redeeming you. And so, when you behold the works of God, you are invited and called and commanded in your mind's eye, before your very eyes, to see the Son of God suspended in air in your place. And to know that God loves you. And to know that God is with you. And to know that all of this happens because God himself erased the gap between him and you. And then, and only then, 
can the presence of God be good news? Without Jesus, without the blood of Christ, this announcement of God's victory at the end of time is not good news. It is sheer terror. And just like Mount St. Helens, it is entirely unexpected. But we want to see God act. And we know we see God act because we know that he's acting right now for us. And this is important because of how God wants us to respond to his presence and his activity in our lives. This is such an oddly unexpected ending to this psalm. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. And all my time, first as a Bible school student and then teaching at the Bible school, one idea has always lingered. I hear it all the time. Christians, especially young Christians or new Christians, want to be people of action. We want to do big things for Jesus. We see the world upended. We witness all of these natural disasters. And Christians often and regularly are the first ones on the front lines bringing aid, helping those in need, comforting those who mourn. And it's absolutely necessary. We see turmoil in the world around us with wars and rumors of wars and persecution and attack. And Christians want to help. And we pray and we cry out to God and all this is good and necessary. But our desire for action and in the midst of that desire for action, God calls us first to be still and know that He is God. God calls us first not to do something, but to see Him working and to be comforted. And to have peace. And to know that He is God. To know that He is in charge. And so when the psalmists here, in Psalm 46, write, Be still and know that I am God. It is not a call to inactivity. It is not a call to fatalism or passivity. Rather, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to acknowledge that God is God and you are not and God is perfect and you are sinful and it is a call in the midst of that repentance to have faith in God, to turn to Him and have hope. This, then, is what the Reformation was all about. It wasn't about academic debate. It wasn't about sticking it to the man. It was about the peace that passes all understanding that God in his wisdom and in his might and in his goodness and his grace and his kindness that God acts and that he has acted in your favor for you to save you. Amen.
And now, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.